Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Niner, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Uh, I want you now as we start into our time and studying Genesis to turn with me to Psalm 104. Uh, I had a joke, uh, someone joked with me that we slowly transitioned out of the Psalms into Genesis, and so I wanted to keep that pattern going by slowly getting us into Genesis, by going back to the Psalter. So uh, if you were in Genesis, flip to the middle of your Bible, we'll get back to Genesis, but one of the things I want us to see is that um, Genesis uh, 1, 2, and 3 are not uh, just like this weird isolated text at the beginning of our Bible, and then once we have creation, God moves on from that. Like, what is, as Jim and I are emphasizing uh, seven, eight different themes through these first three chapters, it's because these three chapters influence and form and are, and are um, a source of worship and admiration ad- of God throughout the rest of Scripture. And so we see that in this Psalter. Siri doesn't understand me. I don't care if you understand me. There we go. <laughs> iPhones, Apple stuff. Okay, so Psalm 104. Let's listen to the psalm writer here. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. You can see uh, some semblance of what we're going to be talking about this morning here in Psalm 104. But so far in our series, we've been a couple weeks in, and what we've talked about our first week was just the, the big picture reality that God is the creator of everything. He's the maker of all things. He created everything uh, and every, everywhere and everyone and everywhere. Uh, God is the creator. He is independent. He has, he, nothing came before him. He has need of nothing, but he himself is the source and author of all life. God is the creator. Last week, Jim talked about the reality that God is a speaking God. Um, So in the opening of Genesis, we hear the simple statement that in the beginning, God, he existed 
eternally and independently. He's before all things. But then there's this reality that not only is he the God who is there, but he is the God who speaks. He communicates. He spoke all things into existence, and he is a communicating God. He has revealed himself to his creation and through his word, and then primarily through his son, Jesus Christ. He speaks by the power of his word, and the world then is created and takes its shape. So that was God as creator, then it was God speaks, and then this week is the reality that God forms. Uh, God gives, he forms the world into a certain pattern and a certain order. He's not just throwing a bunch of materials out there and seeing what happens. He has intentionality. He has design. He has purpose. He has order and form and function to what he is doing. Does anybody else here uh, like puzzles, like putting together cardboard puzzles? I see some no's. I see some no's. Some, some people like Darla, she can't stand puzzles. She doesn't think that way, thinks it's a waste of time. I love puzzles. I, 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 like, I don't love puzzles. I enjoy doing a puzzle, sitting down and taking a, taking a picture or whatever, however pieces it is, and just, yes, it's, a, it's just, it, there is no, like, glorious end to the end of it. You're just putting together a puzzle. You're going to take it apart and put it back in a box. But I enjoy putting together a puzzle. Um, and there's nothing exceptionally profound about doing it, but the idea of there's the hunt, like you've got to find the piece, and so you're going through a whole stack of pieces and you're trying to find the right piece, and you know there's the systematizing of how the strategy of, of how you do it, the, the spatial assessment of I need a piece that needs these. I, I just, I kind of like all of it. Uh, and you don't have to like that. But, but I do like putting a puzzle together. It can be a really good time. But if you're putting toge together a puzzle with someone else, you kind of have to agree, agree upon what your strategy is in putting together a puzzle. What is the best strategy for putting together a puzzle? You're free to have your opinion, but the right answer is the edges first. <laughs> that is the right answer. Now, the reason why I say that, we spent this week, um, we, I had an afternoon with, with Jana, and we were putting together puzzles. And she likes to do faces first. So we have a few, like a, a collection of troll puzzles, you know, the uh, Justin Timberlake crazy-haired movie Trolls. And so she likes to do faces first. I always like to do edges first. So I'm grabbing the edge pieces, and I'm putting the edge together. She's grabbing face pieces, putting it together. And all of a sudden, I realize we're missing like three edge pieces. And, and I'm fresh, I'm looking around. I go back into the, where we keep the puzzles, thinking they've fallen out somewhere. And I come back to realize that she, in her spreading out of her face puzzle work, had stolen some edge pieces. <laughs> we had competing strategies. And, and, and trying to, like, not, not having a consistent strategy really makes for a frustrating um, experience that if you can't agree upon, and eventually those strategies have to come together, right? If you're going to finish the puzzle, it has, it has to be accepted that there is a form to this puzzle that we have to agree upon and put within these certain parameters. If, if you cannot agree upon that, you end up entirely frustrated. Either you don't, either you're frustrated or else you just don't finish the puzzle. Now, in one sense, it's fine to not finish the puzzle. You can just throw it away or get rid of it. It doesn't matter. But when it comes to forms 
borders, boundaries of greater significance, ones that actually impact our lives and cannot be solved by just shoving the pieces back in the box and forgetting about it in your closet for another few months. Um, When that can't be done, trying to live life without the given form that it has been designed for, trying to live life without the given form or with competing forms, competing strategy on how what the form even is supposed to be, living with competing forms ends up being a real stress and a real struggle in this life. And so we see in Genesis an answer to the question of where do form and function come from? And we must address the issue, form and function for your life does not come from within you. Form and function does not come from within ourselves. God is the one who gives form and function. A transcendent being outside of time, before all things, who made all things, He is the one who gives form and function to all things. This means that it is not something we discover within ourselves by navel-gazing and self-exploration, digging deep into our inner self, trying to figure out who and what and what, I mean, all permeations of different things we could be, what we are supposed to be. First and foremost, God is the one who gives form and function. And as we read through the opening of Genesis, this first chapter that we read this morning, we see several things happening, right? God giving form and function. We first see primarily God is in the beginning. He's before all things. He creates the heaven and the earth. The earth is without form and void. And we can talk a lot about some theologians make a lot out of verse 2. Um, which we could talk about that, darkness over the face of the deep, spirit of God's hovering over the waters. There's this, this reality of God being before it all. And then God says, right, what does he say? Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that it was good. And then we see God separates the light from the darkness. They don't get to just exist in some weird, God separates them. He gives form and function. He says, light, you're doing this job. Darkness, you're doing this job. He separates them, evening and morning the first day. And then we continue on from day one. of We see these same kind of phrases coming up. There's this let this be language. There's the making language. And there's this separating language. And all these different days as we go along. Day two, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let there be separate. So separation. And then God made the expanse and separated it so that there was heaven and there was things that were under heaven. There's sky, there's an atmosphere, and then there's land. And then he takes the waters, right? And he lets, gathers them together and lets dry land appear. So he separates, gives distinction, gives form and function. He says, here's earth, here's water. They're different things and they have a specific purpose. The, the earth is not wondering what I should do. Should I hold fish or, or should I bear crops? It, it has a form and a function given by God, separates the two, and he gives form and function. Day three, the waters gathered. Day four, that there be lights. And we see the, the sun and the moon show up and God creates and makes forms. The sun and the moon separates them. The sun has a certain job. The moon has a different job. There's distinction, there's form, and there's function. 
Day five, let the waters swarm and birds fly. And then God creates them according to their kind. There's specificity. There's distinction, division between the species. God gives, he makes them, creates them. He gives them form and function according to their own kind. Day six, he says, let the earth bring forth living creatures. God makes the beasts of the earth according to their own kind. Right? So there's form and function to each kind of being. And then God, on the sixth day, he makes man in his own image to have dominion over all that he's made, to reproduce after their own kind. There's a certain form and a function to humanity, which we're going to spend several weeks coming up talking about the Imago Dei, Imago Dei, however you want to say it, the, the, this, this reality of the image bearer that God has made to fill the earth and to subdue it. And then day seven is this rest and worship, this Sabbath passage. And so, that was the flying run through. We read it every word and now we kind of fly through it. And one of the patterns I want us to see is this reality of God being the one who gives form and function to all that there is. Form and function are hardwired into the very nature of our existence. God is not a creator in, in the deist sense, so like if you are, deism is a, is a theology that says that God, like a clock worker, um, he kind of makes the watch and then just leaves it and lets it run. He's, he creates and then he's involved in it, giving it form and function and purpose. He is, he's, he's involved in his creation. He creates and he does so with continued interest by giving function and form to all that he has created. And so, why is this worldview implication, why is this important today? This is so formative for who we are at every age. If you're a kid in here this morning, if you're uh, you know, an, an older person in the room this morning, it, this, this is absolutely critical and formative to everything that we are. Our world today lives with the self as the center of the universe. Um, some of that is actually normal. Like we're born very narcissistic creatures. Like the baby, the infant, at uh, two in the morning is crying. Doesn't think, I, you know, mom was just in here a couple hours ago. I really shouldn't bother her. Uh, you know, there's, there's some intrinsic narcissism, self-centeredness out of survival that we have as children. But that at some point as we mature, right, we begin to realize uh, the world does not revolve around us. But our modern culture has almost has, has actually talks about the benefit almost, the, the, the goodness of a self-centered world. And the self could be defined so many different ways. Um, but one of the distinctive qualities in our day regarding the self, uh, a Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, he puts it this way, that one of the, one of the distinctive qualities of our view of, of the self, he puts it that there is a focus on inwardness, on the inner psychological life, as decisive for who we think we are. And for, for so much of our culture today, what is decisive on who you are is who you internally think yourself to be. And if you imagine or think yourself to be some such whatever, then the rest of the world must get in line with your internal psychological self, with your internalized Self. That is the way our modern world sees this. Our modern emphasis on the psychological self has taught us that our primary job is to look within ourselves 
to discover who we want to be, and then that discovery then is forced upon the world around us. I figure out who I am, and then you must recognize and appreciate and applaud what I have discovered myself to be. That is the way that our world views, that, that's the worldview that we live in. And in, in fact, our discovery uh, of ourselves is so important and so radical that we've redefined harm in our world today is not that I actually break your arm. Remember the phrase, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me? That's actually not true today. <laughs> True today is like sticks and stones can break my bones and your words are real harm to me. I mean, there's the, we, we flip this upside down to where the, the self, the inner self is so important that it is what gives form and function to the world around me. And anyone who doesn't recognize it is, is actually harming me. So think of a couple of pictures to, to try to emphasize this reality. There's a couple of different ways that our, our worldview is shaped. And if you think about like a, a U-turn symbol that starts down here at the bottom right and then it goes up and then it comes back down. An upside down U, basically. There's this shape that goes up and it arches. And the way that we view from, a, from a, a, our modern viewpoint, the way that we view our world, um, there's a fancy term for this, but you don't care, uh, is that everything starts with the self. You are down here at the bottom of this U and then you, you, you figure out your identity, lift it up. If you're religious, you lift it up to God or you force it out into the world. And that is, that is the, the chart, the, the flow of life. Just self-discovery, lifting it up to God. God, would you bless it? This is who I am. Uh, you must bless it. You must recognize it. And then the blessing comes down from God or from the world or whoever your God is. And the, and the, the center, the locus, the, the focal point, the initiating is the self is the self, but you flip that you around and the Christian view, the view coming to us from Genesis 1, is not that we start at the bottom and climb up to God and, and ask him to bless us, but life instead, form and function, purpose and meaning starts with him, comes down from him, he gives form and function, he says who you are as an image bearer, he says who you are, and then life is lived in gratitude back to him as the one who has made you and has, by his grace formed you and given you function, purpose and meaning and distinction in this world. And you, you really view the world in one of those two ways. Either everything starts with self and lifts up to God and, and demands he bless it, or everything starts with him comes down from him as a gift and then is lifted back up to him in worship and in, and, in, and in thankfulness. The difference is living with either a man-centered theology or a God-centered theology. So God is the one who gives you form and function. We also see in this creation a sequence, diversity and distinction. Not only do we see it, but God, we see God's pronouncement of goodness upon that diversity it's goodness first and foremost we are humans not other beasts of the field <laughs> now sometimes i think i wish i was just my dog lying at home chewing up a rope and then barfing it up later for us to clean up but you didn't care about that detail but anyway sometimes i just wish finding the sunny spot from the window and just laying there and getting warm and i'm out actually like slaving away in the cold and i I pay money for this animal to just sleep on a floor all day long. It, it seems like I'd rather, 
but, but God has made distinctions. I cannot just say, you know what, that dog life looks great. I'm going to find a family that wants to just feed me, you know, dog food and water, keep my bowls fed, and I'm just going to lay around. You know, <laughs> that, that, God has given form and function and distinction. He has made you a human. <laughs> and, and that seems like a silly point, but in our world today, that is uh, that he has appointed your times and seasons you were, God gave you form and function. You were born in this generation by his intention. He has form and function. Secondly, you are born male or female. God has given form and function and distinction, and it's good. Like your gender is not something for you to discover. It is something that is biologically and theologically given. And if we have a, a psychological disagreement with that, we can talk about that. But that doesn't overrule the reality that, that form and function, distinction comes from God, ought to be recognized and then gratefully lifted back up to him. So that, yeah, if you're, you're working through these things at school as you're a kid, form and function is not found from within. It comes from God. Gender comes from God. All sorts of decisions that are out in front of you. Uh, I don't want to go into all the different things we could talk about, but... All of these decisions, there is a certain form and function that God has declared as good that we receive and recognize and then lift back up to him in worship. And he calls it good. Not only in our humanity is your maleness and femaleness a given diversity, it is good. I mean, I think kids, if you are born a girl, that is a good and beautiful thing. If you are born a boy, that is a good and beautiful thing. A role for you to live in, given by God, not to rebel against, but to accept and lift back up to him in myriads of different ways. <laughs> because there also is great diversity. Well, you see God who does give distinction, but he gives diversity. And we could go in further about in the body of Christ, we need all kinds of men and women to fulfill the, 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 the purpose of the church. So God gives form and function. He gives diversity and distinction. But we also see he gives purpose and meaning. He gives purpose and meaning. There's a point to it. <laughs> He doesn't give form and function and division and diversity just because, I don't know, he th there's, a, there's, a, there's a telos. There's a point. He's headed somewhere. And you see that we read, read there in Psalm 104, right, that he gives the grass to the animals might feed, and he gave the fruit of the vine so that man might make wine and have his heart gladdened and get oil for his, you know, his beard so he'd be nice and glistening. You know, that's a, that's, he gives all these things for a, a point. There's a purpose. There's meaning. In all of God's work of creation, he was heading somewhere. I read a really interesting book on, on these first three chapters a few weeks ago that makes much, I didn't agree with a lot of the book, but, but one of the points that this book was making is the temple imagery, that God is heading towards this seventh day where all that he has made worships, he rests, he goes to the throne and he sits and he has his Sabbath, he rests, and then all of creation then is existing in worship of this God who made all things. That is where God is headed. That's why our mission statement is what? We exist to glorify God by equipping all of Christ's people to worship him with all of their lives. There is purpose and meaning. God's work of creating and forming completes. He rests. He declares a day set aside as a Sabbath and worship 
happens. He's given form and function, diversity and distinction, purpose and meaning. And as a result of all of this, this grace that is given to us, he sits upon his throne at peace to receive the worship of all that he has made. When you put all these things together, you realize why the, the first series of catechism questions that we tend to teach out of that truth and memory book, you know, who made you? God made me. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you and all things? For his own glory. There's a purpose. There is a telos. You don't have to wonder what it is. It is to live a life, recede from him, given the form and the function that he has placed upon you as an image bearer in his world, to be lifted back up to him and worship for who he is. There is purpose. There is meaning. But it is not found by navel-gazing. And I don't, looking at your belly button the whole time, looking within, navel-gazing, staring within, how can I find purpose? And, and our world is racked with anxiety. And I know you feel it. I know that even you Bible-believing, uh, seeking to be fully sanctified people, you know, searching, wanting to conform to the image of Christ, we all struggle with that reality. We feel that old uh, curse coming back in, trying to find meaning in thousands of different ways when meaning does, is not created by you. It's recognized as being created by God, given to us, lived in, and lifted back up to Him in worship. What does this mean for us today? Well, sadly, we see how far we are from the goodness of God's creation. Our ideas regarding form, distinction, and purpose, they are all messed up. The fall of man comes in. We'll get to that in a few more weeks. The fall of man comes in, and it breaks all of that. We form and function. Did God really say? Did he really have a point? Um, you, know, you know, actually, what he's afraid of is that you'd become God. And that what, what's actually happened as the fall is that you has gotten turned back around to where actually he doesn't sit up there, but we do. We are the ones that determine form and function and give it to the world. That is the result of the fall. It comes in and it breaks everything. Our denial of divine form. Our selfishness when, how it, when it comes to how we want to organize our lives. Our arrogant attempt to form our own purpose. All of it is rebellion. And all of it is a result of the fall. And we are all trying to assemble a puzzle according to our own frame. <laughs> Throw the box away, forget the edge pieces, let's just cram these things together in five different ways and call it life. It's a mess and ultimately it doesn't work. And this is why Christ and his gospel is so important. We broke from the forms that God made for us. And now by faith in Christ, we are conformed to his image. We broke away from form, but now through faith in Christ we are conformed in his image. We spurned diversity and distinction as given goods, but through faith in Christ and entrance into his family, into the church, we can each find our specific given role in God's work in and through the local church. Through Christ we can confess that when it comes to our ultimate purpose, we do not belong to ourselves, but ultimately we belong to God because we have been bought with a price. Ultimately, this truth is a great comfort to God's people. The anxiety that grips so much of our world today is an anxiety from the pressure of trying to give life meaning and value and purpose. 
how can our junior high and high schoolers honestly be expected not to crack <laughs> under the pressure of trying to figure out all of these forms? I mean, because it isn't just what do you want to do with your life. It's, it's questions of existence that we now throw at, our, at ourselves. Who am I? What am I made for? What is the point of, and, and all of these things trying to come out of the individual, we were not built for that. It's inevitable that we will break. Ultimately, this truth is a great comfort. It is an anxiety when we try to give ourselves meaning and value and purpose. It's an anxiety from trying to fill God's role, a task that is way too big for us. Instead, we ought to rest in who he is, what he has done in the making and the forming of the world by the word of his power and rejoice in how he has rescued his people after they plunged themselves into sin and rebellion, how he has rescued them by sending his son to take their sin upon himself so that every one of us, turning from that sin, turning from our desire to create our own form and function, uh, that, turning from that rebellion and looking to him can be forgiven of their sin and made righteous in his sight. It is his world. He's the creator. Spoke it all into being. He gives it form and function. And we are only truly found and at rest when we are found in him. Let's pray. Father, as we take these weeks and just try to look at big ideas from the, the opening of your divine account to us, God, we pray that that our hearts would be shaped not by the world around us, not even by our rationality in some senses, but that, God, our, our worldview would be formed by your, the God who speaks, and this is what you've declared to us, that, God, we can rest and that the pressure is not on us to formulate all of these high concepts, but that, God, you are in the heavens and you do all that you please and that the Christian lives not in an effort to make something out of themselves, but to find themselves in you, to live a life yielded to you, redeemed by the blood of Christ, absolutely, set right with you through faith in Christ, absolutely, and then living life in response to that, in gratitude to you, the God who made all things, spoke them into existence, gives them form and function. God, it is your world. And may we find ourselves glad to live for your glory and honor in it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.